This is Strange Assembly episode 325, Dragonlance, Shadow of the Dragon Queen. With Shadow of the Dragon Queen, it looks like the next stop on the 5th edition Grand Tour of Dungeons and Dragons settings is Kryn, the world of Dragonlance. Nothing could possibly be as exciting to me as the upcoming Planescape book, but Dragonlance, first appearing back in 1984, is also a favorite of mine. Although the setting has an extensively detailed past and a future, the heart of Dragonlance has always been the War of the Lance and the years immediately before and after it. During this Age of Despair, Kryn, and more specifically the continent of Ancelon, is something of a wreck. It's never really recovered from the Cataclysm, an event several hundred years ago where the gods destroyed the height of civilization for its hubris, and then left. It is a world where honorable orders of knights are viewed with scorn because they couldn't prevent the Cataclysm, a world where there has been no divine magic for hundreds of years, a world where the learning of arcane magic has dwindled and largely been reduced to a single tower of high sorcery. But the evil god Takisis, head of the Dark Pantheon and goddess of the Chromatic Dragons, has devised a scheme to return to Kryn. Evil dragons have been seen in the world again. Sinister draconians have appeared to carry out her bidding. Sorry, dragonborn, you were not the original draconic humanoids. And five armies spread across the world to conquer in her name. The story of the War of the Lance is one of the best known in the history of Dungeons and Dragons. Only the Drizzt books have outsold Weiss and Hickman's Dragonlance novels. The original novelization in the Chronicles trilogy, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Dragons of Winter Night, and Dragons of Spring Dawning, is, in the humble opinion of your host, the most impactful piece of Dungeons and Dragons fiction ever. The companions, Tannis Half-Elven, Sturm Brightblade, Caramon and Raceland Majir, Flint Fireforge, Goldmoon, Riverwind, and the Kender Tasselhoff Burfoot, are some of the most iconic D&D characters. It featured epic villains as well, from Kidiara Uthmatar to the epic Death Knight Lord Soth, and, of course, Takesis herself. The Fizban of Fizban's Treasury of Dragons is from Chronicles as well. All of these characters got their own prequel and sometimes sequel novels. The companions herald the return of divine magic, create new versions of the eponymous dragon lances, restore the pride of the Salamnic Knights, free the elven realm of Sylvanesti, and ride the returned metallic dragons to victory. The glories of Chronicles have, to some extent, been a limitation for Dragonlance. So much of what's known and loved about Dragonlance is specifically these characters and these events. The most popular Dragonlance D&D modules were simply standing in the shoes of the companions and mostly working through the plot of the novels. The fantastic SSI Goldbox series of video games set in Kryn, Champions of Kryn, Death Knights of Kryn, and Dark Queen of Kryn, was set immediately after the War of the Lance, but hit a lot of the same story beats. Evil armies try to restore Takesis, Soth must be dealt with, final confrontation to stop Takesis from being re-embodied on Kryn. So, going into Shadow of the Dragon Queen, a big question on my mind was, how is this adventure module going to relate to that story? 
If it's set in the War of the Lance, how does it distinguish itself from the existing story? If it isn't set in the War of the Lance, can it actually capture the magic of Dragonlance? Thankfully, at least from my perspective, they just went ahead and set Shadow of the Dragon Queen during the War of the Lance. Rather than trying to capture the entire spectacle of the war, or have the characters replace the companions, Shadow of the Dragon Queen has the characters tackling a more narrow objective. The attack of a division of the Red Armies The attack of a division of the Red Dragon Armies on the city of Calaman. For those of you keeping score at home, that makes the leader of this army a subordinate of Dragon High Lord Verminard, who is the primary villain of Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Shadow of the Dragon Queen then goes on to navigate between Scylla and Cherubdis for the entire adventure. You want there to be some familiar faces, but this needs to be the character story. You want the characters to feel epic, but without them being able to do something like kill off Lord Soth. Look, he's, he's on the cover. It's not a spoiler that he shows up in the story. And you want the characters to feel important, but without disrupting the established story of the War of the Lands. Shadow of the Dragon Queen accomplishes that threading of the needle. There are a lot of previews here of what will happen in Chronicles, like the player characters encounter some early prototype version of a tactic employed at a larger scale later in the war. It even starts out with the characters gathering in a small village and getting attracted by draconians on the way, which has a very Chronicles sort of feel to it. It's possible the Dragonlance purists will get a bit grumpy. You don't have to be a wizard to join the to a Tower of High Sorcery, which is a thing you can do during the adventure. You are allowed to play a cleric or other divine caster. There is a special prelude scene to go along with this to make it feel special, but it does contravene the notion that, other than a few clerics of Tachesis, Goldmoon was the first cleric in hundreds of years. Of course, there's more to being a good adventure than making Dragonlance references. The thematic component that stands out here is the march to war part. This is D&D, not a war game, so all of the combat is still at the individual level. But a good number of those individual level combats take place during bigger battles. And each of those battles has special rules. So, for example, the characters might be facing off against a handful of individual Dragon Army soldiers, but an arrow shot from the larger battle might strike one of the combatants, or an injured Dragonel might crash onto the battlefield near the characters. The player characters also might serve as scouts for larger army formations or army irregulars, or they might use an entire army as a distraction to set up their heroic assault. If you buy the deluxe version of Shadow of the Dragon Queen, there's even an entire board game, Warriors of Kryn, that you can incorporate into the D&D campaign. Basically, whenever there's a big army battle, you go play the battle with the board game, including the ability to port your characters into the board game, and then that has an impact on the D&D campaign. This impact is usually along the lines of reputation and a magic item. The D&D adventure wouldn't work if you could just do really well in the board game and drive off the dragon army without it ever getting to Calaman. This is ultimately nice, as it makes the board game element a, a little bonus if that's interesting to you, but it isn't something that makes the D&D campaign feel in any way incomplete if you don't want to incorporate it. Note that that deluxe edition where you get the board game is also where you can get the Dragonlance-specific Dungeon Master screen. Not that the adventure is all war. There's the seemingly obligatory get-to-know-the-people-of-the-town to start off the adventure, 
There are gnome contraptions for both comic relief and serious firepower. There are tombs to explore to learn about the past glories you might end up restoring part of or the past tragedies you might help redeem. There's a big wasteland area to explore and strange magic to discover. Also, there's a kender vampire. I'm not making that up. There's a kender vampire. She's a real chatterbox. I would be all excited about getting draconian stat blocks too, although we already got those in Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, so, yeah. In addition to the adventure, you'll also get the usual assortment of mechanical options. There are, of course, stats for the aforementioned Kender, who are fearless, get a free proficiency, and have their signature taunt ability to draw fire, although they can't really use it very often. There are feet chains for the Salamnic Knights and the Mages of High Sorcery. And you can actually take a feat chain, because in Dragonlance, everyone gets a couple of free feats during early levels. There's also a Lunar Sorcery subclass for the Sorcerer. Standing alone, the subclass is cool. You basically have three sets of abilities, Full Moon, New Moon, and Crescent Moon, each of which grants access to a few more spells, makes your metamagic better for a couple of spell schools, and at higher levels adds on more abilities. By default, the character can change between ability sets after a long rest, but it can eventually be changed on the fly at the cost of a sorcery point. However, as a specifically Dragonlance thing, it's hard to get enthused. Arcane magic in Kryn is tied to the moons, but not in a way that's anything like lunar sorcery, or having anything to do with sorcery at all, given that wizards were the only game in town when Dragonlance was created. I get why you would want to open up the magical abilities of Kryn now that there are so many more types of full casters than there were back in the day, but it would have been cool if this subclass was based more around how the Dragonlance gods of magic work. All told, Shadows of the Dragon Queen delivers a lot of cool moments. I like how setting certain combats within larger battles is mechanically handled. Several of the dungeon crawls by another name have interesting characters and puzzles to be found, There are some epic, magical moments. There are some recurring NPCs who the characters will really connect with, or who they will really love to hate. Although there aren't as many of these as the book pretends there are. As usual, the cast of villagers will require a lot of effort on the part of the DM to actually incorporate into the story and make the players care about them. The included adventure preludes set the characters up to be tied into the setting. I would strongly recommend that if you're going to play through this, that your party include a cleric, a salamnic knight, and an arcane caster who wants to join the mages of high sorcery. Feel free to throw in a hyperactive kender as semi-comedic relief. There's a reason why that sounds an awful lot like a traditional D&D party, because that's exactly what Dragonlance was designed to be. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there, in the Apple Podcasts app, through Amazon, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcatching services, we should be on there. If you don't see us on your preferred podcatching service, please let me know. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear your comments and thoughts. You can also reach us at the usual social media. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly, at strangeassembly on Twitter and Instagram. But until then... I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.